This is our third preview service, and I know that those of you that have been a part of the preview services got a chance to hear about um, how we planned out these three preview services. We're essentially getting to the core during this time, sermon time, the three C's that lie at the heart of our mission, which is to passionately love Jesus Christ, engage in authentic community, and radically advance the cause of Jesus. In the last two preview services, Michelle talked about the cause of Jesus and advancing that and what that means here in the city. David talked about what it means for us to be this authentically engaged community. And today, I have the privilege to be able to... It's up there. Thank you, man. <laughs> if he's going to be helpful, you got to go all the way, bro. You can't just leave it like this. <laughs> what? Okay. And it is my pleasure today to talk to you about the first C, which is to love Jesus Christ. Um, it, is not, it is not an exaggeration for, for those of you that have been coming for any period of time or those of you that are joining for the first time. It's not an exaggeration for us to say that Jesus really is at the heart of everything that we do. Amen? Like he is at the heart and the core of everything that we do. Listen, we're not about the cause of Jesus. We're about Jesus and we love him. And that's why we fulfill the cause. Jesus is at the passion, is, 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 is at the heart of our passions. Jesus is at the heart of everything that we do in this church. We start with Jesus in the middle. We kind of, you know, middle end is Jesus. Jesus is at the core of who we are and what we do. So for those of you that are coming to this church, if a Sunday goes by without somebody proclaiming the name of Jesus, y'all need to tell the pastors and go, you're not on point with the mission of our church. Jesus is at the heart of everything. Having said that, I'm fully aware that regularly in our church settings, even in Bronzeville, there will be those of you who don't know Jesus. And we love that. You're on journey. You're seeking. Perhaps you are of another faith. And we love the fact that you're here with us On this journey of discovering who Jesus is. And intentionally on Sundays, we want to be able to preach and give sermons in such a way that those of you that are here that don't have a relationship with Jesus will say, I'm getting to know who he is. And that we intentionally engage you in our conversation as well. So today as I thought about, you know, I've been preaching for seven, eight years on this. And I have one Sunday to tell you about what we mean when we say we want to love Christ. And so, uh... I, I picked a passage that I think best gets to in one Sunday, one sermon. By the way, my wife goes, I'm hungry, so keep it short. So, <laughs> so I'm going to keep it short. Um, Mark chapter 4. I'm not ashamed to admit, you know who's the boss at our home. David, are you? No. Carlos? No. I just go around all the married men in our church. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And if you don't have your Bibles, we love technology. And so it'll be zoomed up on the screen for you via Tyler. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Let's read this. Um, follow along as I, as I read. Uh, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Does anybody else find that funny? 
It's funny, right? Okay, and we'll talk about that moment. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? My translation, where is your faith? Verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? I say in our church that if you want to get to the heart, root, bottom of Christianity, you've got to look at Jesus. We start with Jesus. And look at Jesus to get to the heart of Christianity. I talk to a lot of friends of mine who are non-Christian. And essentially the conversation we talk about what the essence of Christianity is comes to Jesus. If you want to look at what Christianity is, we go to Jesus. He's the data. He's the evidence when we talk about Christianity. If you have no Jesus and there's really no Christianity to speak of, more importantly, if you have a wrong Jesus, you have a wrong view of Christianity. So today, we ask this question as we look at this text. What does this text teach us about Jesus and thereby teach us about what the Christian faith is? A couple things real quick as we delve into this text. First of all, my opinions and what I think about Jesus really doesn't amount to hill of beans. It doesn't really matter. None of our opinions about who Jesus is and what he did and so on and so forth doesn't matter. What matters is that we go to the Bible and we look really hard. What matters is that we go to the Bible and look really hard and we press in to see what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is and what he did. Okay? So our opinions about Jesus, and for some of us, maybe grew up in church, what our church had to say about us about Jesus, what popular culture, what all these other things say about Jesus really doesn't matter. We go to the scriptures, we press really hard and go, what does the Bible have to say about Jesus? That's the first thing. Second thing is this is that when you go to the Bible and look really, really hard at Jesus and what Jesus, what the Bible has to say about Jesus, many of us and how we respond to Jesus in our culture, well, let me, let me put it this way. When you go to the Bible and you hear and meet who this Jesus is and what he had to say, the way that the people in the Bible reacted to Jesus could not be more different from the way we react to Jesus today. See, we like Jesus. We admire Jesus. I think he's a good guy. Popular culture says he was a good teacher. He was a good prophet. They had a very mild, favorable reaction. When you go to the scriptures, when people heard Jesus, saw Jesus, the way they responded to him could not be more different. How, how, do, you, how do you respond? How do you respond to what Jesus said and what he did? Is it one of, yeah, he's a nice guy. Yeah, he says some good things. And we may even be Christians and say, he's Savior and Lord. And yet our response to who he is and what he said is one of mild, maybe. uh, Listen, um, a cultural sort of expert, I guess, Bono, was interviewed by Rolling Stones a while back. And this is what uh, the, the interviewer asked Bono. Bono, Jesus Christ is value, and he's ranked among the great thinkers of the world. But the Son of God, come on, don't you think that's a little far-fetched? That's what Bono said. He said, no, actually, it's not. 
The secular response to the Christian story goes something like this. He's a great prophet. He had a lot of great things to say along the lines of other prophets. But Jesus does not allow you to say that. Jesus says, don't call me a teacher or a prophet. I'm saying that I'm God incarnate. So we're left with this. Either Christ is who he says he is, or he's a complete nutcase on par with Charles Manson. And I'm not joking here. The idea that one half of the human race has had its history completely changed by a nutcase, that for me is far-fetched. If you really encounter the real Jesus found in scriptures, your response will not be one of, ah, he's a cool guy, great things to say, a good teacher. As C.S. Lewis said, either you will hate him, you will fear him, or you will fall down and worship him as Lord. That's the only appropriate response if you really listen to who he is and what he said. Does that make sense? See, for some of us that have grown up in church, we're sort of vaccinated with Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Sort of give me a little bit of him so I don't catch the real thing. Just a little bit of him so I don't catch. Are we truly encountering the real Jesus on real scriptures? What an appropriate thing to ask, huh, during this season of Lent. During this season of Lent. If you've really met Christ, a mild response to Jesus has no integrity. The only rational response. I have a lot of friends, again, who are not Christian. You know what they say? They say, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm interested in Jesus. I like Jesus, but the church, I can't stand the church. You guys remember that? The church in America, so much, the Christian school. And I go, okay, to a certain extent I agree, but let me press you a little bit. I'm not going to defend the church, especially not even ours, right? But let me ask you, when you talk so easily about you like Jesus, come on, have you really heard what he said? Really? Have you really read what he did? Because if you did, I doubt you'll go, I like him. He's a good guy. Either you will hate him, fear him. You'll fall down and say, Lord, Lord. The story that we looked at today, Mark introduces us in chapter 4 and 5 to a series of what commentators call power miracles, power miracles. And this narrative introduces us to, the, to this dynamic of Christ, the power of Christ. And what we see here is that he is a Lord, even of the storm, Lord of the storm. Uh, there's four or five points I want to kind of go over as we look at this text. And here's the first one. As we look at the power of Christ. First of all, Mark introduces us and reveals to us the reality. The reality of the power of Christ. Will you give me like two minutes here to talk to those of you that are not Christian? Okay, or maybe to those of you that are Christian, you have non-Christian friends that you talk to on a regular basis who say stuff like this. Come on. He said to the waves and the wind, quiet, be still. And it happened. He fed the 5,000 and they were actually fed. He walked out. Come on. He really believed that. To which, what do you say? Here's what scripture says to us. To many people who say, I can't believe stuff like that happened because it's just not, you know, it's, it's a legend. Legend that people create. Have you guys heard that, by the way, from your knowledge? It's a legend, made-up story, fiction that people, you know, sort of to make it a propaganda about Jesus early, so on and so forth. Well, here's three real quick sort of sub, uh, why we see the reality of Christ. First of all, the timing is too early to be a legend. There's jotting down notes, the timing. The book of Mark, historians say, was written anywhere 30 to 40 years after the death of Christ. 
death and resurrection of Christ. 30 to 40 years. The reason why this is critical is because legends are written long after the actual events happened. Why? Legends, by its nature, okay? You can make all kinds of things up, but people that were alive during that time will have died. They're all gone. So you write legends two, three, four hundred years. You don't write legends 30, 40 years after the actual events happened. When people go, did that really happen? Yeah, it really happened. How do you know? Uh, There are people still living that saw it, that heard it. Go ask them. Found throughout the New Testament. Think. Found throughout the New Testament. Authors say, it really happened. How do I know? There are 500 people who are still alive. Go ask them. The timing is too early to be a legend. Secondly, uh, the content is too counterproductive to be a legend. Do you ever think about this? People that go, eh, some disciples just kind of created this and made it up, the story about Jesus. If that was true, why would you make as the base of this faith things like when he was on the cross, he cried out, God, why are you forsaking me? Why would you make up a legend that says his most loyal followers said, oh, we're done with you and ran for their lives? If you wanted to make up a legend, why would you write that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women whose testimony wasn't even allowed in the court of law? Why would you write down the kinds of things that people would go, if you want to make up a legend, I got better creative ideas. Why is it here? Because it, say it with me, happened. Third, and this is for those of you that are literature majors and so on and so forth. I'm not very smart, so this is just, here it is. Third, the literary form is too detailed to be a legend. Do a little study and you realize, okay, you realize legends, especially in this time, were not written with such vivid details. Look at this text. Look at your Bibles. It's 150 words, a total number of words, Mark chapter verse 35 to 41, 150 words. And yet the story is incredibly vivid, you know. Mark paints this picture. It's compact. Every scholar, every scholar uh, that studies this time says it is just too many unnecessary details for it to be a legend. Because legends just weren't written that way. For example, the evening came. There were other boats with him. Tell us what part of the boat Jesus was in. He was asleep on a cushion. Who cares? That was used by people who didn't fish. And then all the other guys was John 21, we write, John says, and the disciples caught 153 fish, 153 fish. And John 8, Jesus doodles on the ground. Remember the story with the adulterous woman? Doodles on the ground. We don't know what it is. But why are these details in there? What does the scholars say? Legends were not written that way. Legends were written in such a way that such vivid details were not a part of these legends. Matter of fact, what, what scholars call modern realistic narrative fiction, which included these kinds of intricate details. It was only invented about 400 years ago. Why are these things in here? Because it happened and somebody remembered. These are the marks of personal remembrance. People who told the gospel writer Mark these accounts. So to someone who says, you know what, I just, I mean, come on. Come on. It's a made-up legend. It's fiction, so on and so forth. Here's the point. If you're somebody who says, I just can't believe in the miracles of Jesus and that these stories were just made up and embellished, the evidence according to history and gospel is that that's not true. It actually happened. And all the gospel writers essentially wrote documented history interviewing 
people who were there and people who saw it. For those of you, that took a little more than two minutes. Sorry about that. Uh, for those of you that are Christian, why is this story important? Here's why it's important. Every single one of us at one time or another will have gone through and will in the future massive storms in our lives. And if you don't believe this actually happened and Jesus actually did this, then where would you place your hope? If you and I do not believe in a real Jesus who says to the waves and the sea, I literally he's saying, shut up and stay shut up and it obeys him. If we do not serve and worship a Lord who has this command over all of creation, what hope is there when we go through storms in life? Why is it important for us as Christians to know that it's not some made up legend? Because he is Lord. Truly. Truly. Second point that Mark gets to us as we look at the power of Christ is the, 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 the reality of Christ first, and then secondly, the magnitude of the power of Christ. Look at your text. Let's do some, some in, 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 in sort of in-depth Bible study here this morning, okay? L- listen to your text. Listen to the text. The, the storms were common in this sea. Okay, and I'm not going to spend a long time. Uh, the, the, way that, uh, the way that the sea was situated and the mountains and all this other Storms were very, very common in this part of, of, of the region. Okay? Not only that, but if you were a fisherman, of which many of his disciples were, you were used to it. True? You fished in the sea all of your life. Your parents, your grandparents, you've heard about the worst stories. This is nothing unusual. And so for these disciples to be scared of that, this is a massive storm. Okay? For them to be terrified, fishermen who have seen it all, done it all, have heard it all, for them to be terrified, this is not your little storm. This is a massive, never seen anything like it, storm. That's coming on top of them. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus gets up and he says to the storm. In the English Bible, it says, quiet, be still. In Greek, it's literally, shut up. Stay shut up. That's what Jesus says. And notice, and the text doesn't really bring this. There's no posturing. Jesus is asleep. Wake up! Don't you care? He gets up. There's no posturing. There's no... There's no, you know, working himself up. I just get this picture. He just gets up. Everything is chaos around him. The disciples are freaking out. He gets up and he says, shut up. Stay. Shut up. And here's what happens. To this. Check this out. So there are people who go, it could have just been an accident. You know, sometimes. But here's the thing about the text. Jesus first commands the wind to stay. Sh- shut up. So he comes. So, but, but the sea. See, the wind could all of a sudden stop, right? Have you ever been? Wind could all of a sudden stop, but the waves will still. But what happens? Jesus says, shut up! Wind stops, and then he says, stay shut up. And all of a sudden, the seas literally says, became like glass. You picturing this? <laughs> no posturing. No, thus say the Lord. No, just... Shut up, stay 
shut up. Wind stops, and the sea becomes as smooth as glass. There's a challenge and encouragement. Here's a challenge. Again, let me talk to those of you that are not Christian. Maybe, maybe you are a Christian. This would be applicable to you too. Here's a challenge as we see the magnitude of the power of Christ. I talk to a lot of folks, again, who say something like this. Say, you know, I'm interested in Jesus, but, but here's the thing. Becoming a Christian and being, being, being in a relationship with Jesus doesn't mean I need to kind of change that. Doesn't mean I have to change my opinions about that because I have very strong opinions about that, you know. Doesn't mean I got to, uh, doesn't mean that I got to, you know, uh, change kind of my life in certain of these areas. Uh, does it, these questions that people ask about who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian and to relationship with him ultimately to me boils down to this. People go, does becoming a Christian mean that Jesus Christ will give me some sense of peace in my heart that I'm looking for and power in my life to reach my goals? So a lot of people are asking. Now, here's the challenge. If this is who Jesus is, guy who gets up and says, shut up, stay shut up. Is that the kind of person you approach and say, let me ask you something. If I invite you into my heart, will you uh, make sure that I've got some peace and some power? Is that the kind of person you say, you know what, I need some help in my life. Is that the kind of person you come and say, you know what, I'm lacking a little peace, so I need you to, is that the kind of person you do that with? Or is that the kind of person you say, just as Peter did, fall on our faces and say, Lord. Hmm? And how do you approach this kind of a person? How do you approach the kind of a person? Do you realize how utterly silly it is if Jesus is who he is for us to come to this man, this God who commands the seas and the wind to be still and it obeys him instantly. Is this the kind of person you come and say, what will you do? It's it's utterly silly for us to come to Jesus and say, can you tell me what you will do for me and my life before you recognize that he is the author of life? It is utterly silly for us to come to him and say, listen, if I ask you into my life, will you make sure that you give me a little peace of mind and a little strength? How can you even ask him that before you even realize whether you are an accident, a product of random chance, or you have been created by God and fashioned by God with purpose? How do you approach someone like him? How do you approach someone like him? Isn't it ludicrous to say, I want a relationship with you as long as you do what I know needs to be done? Why are people who are searching for answers not getting answers? Maybe it's because they're not going to Jesus and asking questions. They're giving orders. They're giving demands. And maybe Jesus has the right to go, come back when you have the right attitude. And the right attitude isn't coming and say, what will you do for my life if I do? How would if I? Maybe the right attitude is, are you who you say you are? Maybe that's the question and not, what will you do? If. Are you who you say you are? Son of God. Who commands the ways still. Who commands the seas be still and obeys. Mm. If Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe the right question to ask if you're not a Christian is, are you who you say you are? If you are a Christian, here's a challenge for you. 
Do you realize who it is that you've invited into your life? I say this a lot in New Community. Please, for many of us, the way we treat Jesus is like he's a personal assistant. We treat him like he's a personal assistant that we go to for help. Is this the kind of person who commands the wind and the waves? Is this the kind of person you go to to ask him for a little help here and there when you need it? Or is he the kind of person who says, my life, my all? Hmm? My life, my all. Christians, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me this morning. Our approach to this God, this Jesus. I mean, good God, has the church so domesticated him that he's become a personal assistant that tags along and responds whenever need is help? Or is he the Lord of the universe? That commands the wind and the waves. Shut up. Stay. Shut up. You like Jesus? If you really knew Jesus, you would never, ever say, you know, I should really make some room in my life for Jesus. He is either your Lord or he is nothing at all. Here's an encouragement, though. Oh, actually, challenge, challenge. Evaluation questions for challenge real quick. Let me just, just as I, you know, as I thought about kind of How's my approach to Jesus? See, just three real quick evaluation questions. Whether he is Lord of your life, of my life. Whether he is who he says he is. One, am I willing to obey whatever God says about a particular area? No matter how I feel about it. Here's a second evaluative question. Am I willing to accept whatever comes into my life as a part of God's perfect plan? Remember who this is. Remember who this is. Third question, evaluate a question. Am I willing to thank God for whatever happens in this area, whether I understand it or not? Hmm? Jesus. Here's an encouragement. Encouragement for you and for me. The magnitude of his power. It's not that's just the, the posing of challenge of whether we approach him as he is. But here's an encouragement. Encouragement is this. The word see that's found throughout the Old Testament. Is a symbol for chaos and evil. See, let me show you an example. Job chapter 9 verse 8 says this. He alone stretched out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And I wrote a little parentheses. The Hebrew word is yam, okay? Hebrew word is yam. And that's the word for sea. Now, here's the thing you need to know. In Hebrew, the word yam was also the word for the evil sea monster. Yam. The evil sea monster. So whenever the Hebrews thought of the word yam or the sea monster, it was a reminder of something they feared. Something they feared. Here's the encouragement from this text. As we see Jesus having lordship over the seas. Do you have any chaos monsters in your life? Somebody say yes. you have anything that's a source of your fear, source of your anxiety? Today? Come on, be honest. Are there things in your life that's a source of fear, source of anxiety, because it's a reminder of chaos, something that's, let me tell you, the good news, the encouragement of this text. Jesus is not only Lord over evil, Jesus is also Lord over chaos, over seas, over the things that make us anxious and fearful. 
Jesus Christ comes along. And just as he has power and authority over the seas and the winds to say, shut up, stay shut up. He comes to us today and the source of our fears, the source of our anxieties. And you know what they are financially. Am I ever going to be married? You've lost a job. You've lost a child. Various things that are source of fears and anxieties in our lives. We serve a Lord who comes over it and says, I'm Lord over that. Do you hear me? I'm Lord over that. His authority and power over the things in our lives, a source of anxiety, fear, and chaos. The good news is that there is nothing, hear me, there's nothing in your life that's too twisted for God to heal. There's nothing in your life that's too broken and too fragile and too messed up for God, this God, to be able to take and to heal. Do you believe this? That's who we serve. That's who we serve. Church, if Jesus is who he says he is, take off the limitations you place on him. Repent of your cynicism. Some of us just need to go home today, seriously. Have a good time of repentance with our Lord for how cynical we are today. Come on. Come on. Can I just illustrate this for you? What, what, what is the very thing that you, God, I just, every time I think about that, it freaks me out. Every time I think about, for example, everything about that, that sin in my life that I just can't seem to overcome, is that sin greater than the Lord who says to the wind and the sea, shut up, stay shut up. That family member, that friend that you say, they're so broken, so messed up. I don't know if anything, even God, could heal them. Is that any match for the God who commands to see in the waves? Shut up. Say shut up. Is there anything in your life you're actually looking at going, can God do, can God do? Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? The magnitude of the power of Christ. Third, third, the revelation of the power of Christ. Now, let me, let me, let me, give me, a, give me, a, give me a moment to kind of tease this out, okay? Because I try, to, I try to be, I try to be kind of cute and smart and try to have these rhyme, you know? And I got stuck on this one. I, so, to tell me if it worked, okay? I got stuck on this and I'm like, I can't think of a word, God. Here's what I mean by the revelation of the power of Christ, Okay? Listen, listen. This isn't just a display of great power, but it's a manifestation of divine power. What do I mean? This is one of those things. We read these passages that are very familiar to us, Tyler, and then we look. Here's the thing. The disciples are scared with the storm. But what happens in the text after Jesus says, shut up, stay shut up, and the wind and the waves die? What happens to disciples? They go, oh, it's great. The Bible says they go from being scared to being terrified. Some of you might have heard sermons on this past before. So it's not. Jesus comes and they go, woohoo! We serve an amazing God. Oh, it's amazing God. Yes. They go from, we're scared Jesus do something. Everything is calm and they go, oh. Why? They get from the presence of the storm's power into the presence of divine power. They find themselves in the presence of the holy. And you know, the interesting thing, you read the Bible, that's exactly how people responded. 
It's so funny to me. And I'm actually preaching on this next, and I'm kind of broken on this. Our culture, and we think of Jesus, warm fuzzies, warm fuzzies. Ah, it comes into my heart. Warm fuzzies. It was so the problem is, you read the Bible, that never happened. Because when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what, tell me, what happens whenever Jesus shows up? How do people respond? They, come on. Whenever the presence of God, Moses, show me your glory. Okay, I'll just show you my back. Ah! Peter, Jesus says, casts the net on the other side, catches a fish. He brings it in. He falls down and says, get away from me. Get, I, I'm a sinner. John in Revelation. Time and time, why? Why? Do they go from not just being scared, to being terrified in the presence of God. The theological, there's a theological practical implication. The theological implication is this. They find themselves in the presence of, of, of the glory of God, of utter holiness, of utter beauty. The Hebrews call it the Shekinah glory of God, the manifestation of glory of God. And so they fall, and I don't have time to delve into this, but, but they fall because now they find themselves realizing this is the creator. But there's a practical implication of this. And let me put it this way. The practical implication and why this is important is this. Sometimes, everybody, can you look up here? Sometimes God's solution to your problems will seem more terrifying than the actual problem. What's your name, sister? Christine? You resonate with that? So I don't even have to explain what I mean by that. You get it? Wow, Jenny, we are going to get early lunch today. Um, Sometimes God's solutions. Sometimes the thing that God does to take you. Sometimes the thing that God asks you to do takes you out from the very thing that's terrifying you right now may seem more terrifying. Why? When the disciples were in their problems, they're scared. But what it took them to get out of it, they're terrified. The reason is in the question that Jesus asks. Perhaps the key verse in the title of today's sermon, you guys, was verse 40. When Jesus says, do you still have no faith? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, where is your faith? Here's the reason why sometimes God's solutions to get us out of the things that terrify us is more more terrifying than the actual problem. Jesus said it this way in a small parable that he told in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. It's a very familiar parable to many of you guys. It's the parable of building house on sand or rock. Verse 24, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, and the wind blew. Notice the image of a storm and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But because everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Let me just apply it very practically what I mean by here. 
Okay? As I said earlier, the reality is every single one of us living on this planet Earth that's fallen in sin and has been redeemed by God, every single one of us will encounter various storms in our lives at some point. Some of you are going through that right now, but here's the deal. If your entire foundation, source of your faith, source of your identity, source of significance, that thing that you look to for meaning in life is success, when storms come at work, when storms come in family, when storms come in some area where you experience failure, it will utterly destroy you. It's okay to be in love. It's okay to be in love with relationship. It's okay to be in love. It's okay to have relationships and want relationships. But if you make that the very thing, the very thing, the very significance, identity, the thing that gives you a sense of meaning in life, when storms come in that area, they break up with you. They no longer want to be with you. It won't just crush you. It will absolutely devastate you. I've seen this happen. Asian families. It's okay to honor and love and respect your family. Honor and love, respect your father. But if your father and your parents' approval and your family is the source of meaning, identity in your life, seeing that person in a coffin will absolutely, utterly devastate you. I've seen this happen to good many Christians. It's okay to want to be a good Christian who lives moral lives. But if your identity is found in, I'm moral, I'm a good Christian, I obey the laws, I, and you feel and experience failure, and you sin and you do things that you didn't think you were capable of, it won't just disappoint. It will utterly devastate you. I'm asking you today, the very question Jesus asked, which is, where is your faith? What are you building your life on? What are you building a sense of meaning in? What are you building your sense of worth, sense of significance in? If your all is built on that, I am telling you, when a storm comes into your life in that area, it won't just disappoint, it will devastate. Can you be honest this morning and ask yourself, what am I building my life on? What am I building my life on? What am I building my identity on, my significance on? See, this, Jesus comes and says, the reason why you're terrified is what did you believe? Where, where is your foundation? Faith in who? Faith in what? Wisdom. Whose wisdom? Whose honor? And whose love? Why is it terrifying to go to Jesus sometime in the storm? Because this Jesus might not just say, well, okay, let me accept. This Jesus might say that the reason why you're terrified and scared in this storm in your life is where is your faith? And what he might actually do to have you build your life on an entire foundation and what he is asking you out of that might seem like the scariest thing you've ever had to do. But I'm telling you, It's the most wise thing to do. What are you building your life on? Where is your faith? Is it Christ? Or is it something else?
feel like every single week, uh, my counseling sessions in my office, if I had to describe it this way, is there's somebody building their house, their life on this foundation. Storm's coming. And they feel like they're just dying inside. And they come to my office and say, why is this happening to me? What's going on? I can't stand this. I'm thinking about chucking the whole thing. It's not even worth being a Christian, to which my job ultimately is to get them to see and ask this question, where is your faith? Where's your faith? When God looks at you, maybe, or me in the midst of our storm, maybe what he's saying is, do you see why you feel the way you feel? Maybe the reason why our lives feel meaningless is because the very thing that we have put our meaning in is no longer coming through for us. Maybe the reason why we feel like there's no sense of purpose, sense of direction, sense of I know where I'm going and my life has a sense of is because the very thing that gives us purpose, the very thing that gives us direction, that idol is dying. And all idols eventually die. And it's no longer coming through for us. Will you look at yourself? Can I look at myself this morning and say, in the midst of the troubles, the hardships, the storms that often come, could it be, could it be that what I'm most afraid of, afraid of losing, afraid of being cut off from, afraid of not having, is the very thing that we are building our lives on, building our house, and Jesus saying, it's like building on sand cannot stand. The revelation of the power of Christ reveals to us, here's four, the paradox of the power of Christ. The paradox of the power of Christ. What do I mean? In this text, as we see throughout the scriptures, common theme, we see the compatibility of storms with God's redeeming love. Storms with God's redeeming. Why do I why do I say this? Because again, majority of and maybe I'm just like, you know, I'm the pastor, so I hear this, you know. But when one of the most common things that I hear amongst Christians is it goes something like this, where they doubt God's love or God's power. It's something like this. You've never asked this question, I know. But you know, some people go, Why is this happening to me? Because if God really loves me, this wouldn't be happening. This is happening, so that means God doesn't love me. Have you heard anybody? I know you can't relate to that at all, right? So, so they doubt God's love. If God really loves and cares for me, this wouldn't happen. And this is happening. So therefore, you know, it's a pretty simple equation that God can't pass. Or God's not powerful, right? Because if God was powerful and he had the ability to do it, he would do it. And he would do something. The fact that he is not doing it means that he's not powerful enough. So we doubt God's love. We doubt God's power in the storms of our lives. And this text teaches us this fundamental truth, which is it is absolutely compatible for God's redeeming love that you would face storms in life. It is absolutely compatible for us to say, God, you are an all-loving, all-sovereign God, and there will be storms in my life. I'm sorry, if you grew up in church where they didn't teach you that, and so when storms came, you automatically went to, if that happens, that means I'm not in obedience, that means I'm not a good Christian, or that means that God doesn't love me sovereign. I'm telling you biblical truth right now. It is absolutely compatible with God's redeeming love that you sink. Absolutely compatible. To which you go, what? show me. Where, where did that happen? Where did that happen? 
It happened at the cross. It happened at the cross. The greatest injustice in, the, in, the, in human history. The greatest injustice in human history. The dying, the death of a suffering Savior, innocent Savior, is the very thing that God uses to bring redemption, healing, and salvation. How can we say that God's redeeming love is incompatible with hardships, trials, and suffering and injustice when the very thing that is the symbol of injustice is the thing that God uses to bring his kingdom into our world? So when you and I go through suffering, trials, and storms, our response should not automatically be, you're not loving, you're not powerful. Our response should be, God, how will you use this to bring redemption, healing, salvation for me and for the world? Followers of Jesus, where have we gone astray? That this biblical truth that anchors us And truth that we need to come to again and again and again on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is the truth-telling mechanism that says, when you are sinking, remember that he still loves you. When you are sinking, remember that he is still all-powerful. When you are sinking, remember that he is at work. Is that good news? This is wonderful, wonderful news. And can I just say this, just as a pastor, it appears to me that if some of us would be willingly honest in the admit, isn't it through the storms of life that God does some of his greatest work in us? Come on. You know? I know we resist, but is it not true? Come on. Isn't that when we become hypersensitive spiritually? Is that not when we become hypersensitive? And our God, who knows us so well, knows that it is during those storms. I know that this isn't popular in some circles. I don't want to hear it. But let's just, be, let's just be truthful. It's during those times when people don't have to tell us to pray. We pray all the time. People don't have to remind us to do the devotions. Crying out loud every single second, every moment is devotion time. When God is ever-present. It may be, But you know what? At least you're talking to him. It's during those times that God brings us and teaches us this fundamental truth, which is we don't realize that he is all that we need until he is all that we have. And isn't that the essence of Christian faith? God will allow storms to come into your life. It will terrify you when he sees a real solution to what it is that he is trying to do. But you know what? Instead of resisting, submit and yield. And gaze on the cross. Whenever you lose hope and you go, God, can any good possibly come out of this? Gaze on the cross. Daddyus, Daddyus, got to go, man. He's going to the bathroom. I'm like, come on, I'm finishing up here. Get up there. Hold it in for like five more minutes. Can you do that? Okay, thanks, man. <laughs> We're very, sorry. 
Did I just say that out loud? I'm sorry. I just. Okay, guys, I want to finish here. There's one more, but, but, but listen, listen. Hey, look, look, before the last point, because this is the most important part. Um, one of the things that struck me about this passage is that Jesus is not very gentle with his disciples. And it's unique because the reality is Jesus is very, very gentle with tax collectors, prostitutes. She's very, she's very gentle with the sinners. And yet with disciples here, he's not very, he's not very gentle with them. He, as a matter of fact, he's... And I, I, I looked at this, I'm, why is that? And then I realized, I can relate to this. Because you know what they're doing? They're doing what my son and my daughter do all the time. My son, now they could speak. Uh, my, 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 my kids... I've gotten used to playing our iPhone, you know. I, iPhone is, 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 is becoming like his favorite toy, you know. It's amazing. Five years old, he, he worked right through it, you know. He's teaching my wife actually about some of these apps and stuff like that, right? One time he was playing with it, and it was time for dinner. He had to take a bath. I said, Parker, we're done. Dinner time, let's go. Parker, second time. Parker, we're done. Come on, come on. And he was in a bad mood that day anyway to begin with. So I went, I took it from him. I said, time for bath. And guess what he said? <laughs> he says, that's not fair. You don't love me anymore. <laughs> Parents, can I get an amen? <laughs> now here's the thing. When they do that, parents, is that time to be sympathetic? Is it time to go, oh, I know, honey, I'm so sorry. Daddy doesn't want to do that. Of course not. Is it time to be sympathetic? The answer, parents, is no. Is it, because you look at him and you go, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you know that I have gladly disrupted last five years of my life for you? Do you know how much I have sacrificed for you? Do you know? How much sleep I have overlooked. Do you know how much food? Do you know how much? That's what I want to say. It's not time to be pathetic. It's time to say, are you kidding me? I do this one thing to cross you and you. But you know what? Isn't that what we do with God? Isn't that what we do with God? The one thing. I wanted a job. I wanted that relationship. I wanted that. Why did you have to take that one thing? And our response is, you don't love me anymore. And you expect God to sit there and go, I know. I'm just, no, God says, really? Here's the fifth, last point. I will end you with this. Thaddeus, come on up. The power of Christ in the gospel. How do we then overcome? How do we overcome? How do we endure? How do you endure these various storms? What do we do? How do we endure through it? And Jesus reveals to us in this text the gospel. Listen. Do you know why I think Jesus gets worked up? Because when the disciples literally say in verse 37, don't you care? I think what Jesus is saying is, don't you care? Here's another biblical truth. Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't you care? Care about what, Jesus? That I 
in a matter of days and weeks and months and years will endure the ultimate storm for you. The ultimate storm that is going to come on me and that ultimate storm, the season of Lent, the ultimate storm is the storm of God's wrath, God's justice on every evil, every sin, every injustice in our world. I think Jesus, through this text, says disciples, but more importantly, you and me, when we say, don't you care about this storm? Don't you want me to? I think Jesus comes along and says, here's where you find power in the gospel, where Jesus comes and says, I endure the ultimate storm of God's wrath and God's justice on behalf of your sin, sins of the world, all the evil and injustice. Why? So that when you go through the minor storms in your life, you know that I walk with you. And I am for you. If Jesus didn't abandon you through the ultimate storm of God's justice and wrath, what makes you think he's going to abandon you through your little storm in your life now? Does that make any sense? Does it make any sense that the one who endured the ultimate storm of God's wrath and justice and said, I will not abandon you, I will not forsake you, I will never leave you, would leave us? It's a little storm that we face. Do you really, really think that that Jesus would abandon you? Through that? Where do we get the power to endure the storms? It's not gritting my teeth and saying, oh, well, he just has a plan. It is looking up, seeing the cross of Jesus Christ and saying, you endure the ultimate storm. So I know I can go through this storm with hope, with perseverance. See, the reality is if God didn't come down, all the way down in the form of his son, which will celebrate this upcoming week, walk the face of this earth, endure the various storms, but goes to the cross and endures the ultimate storm for all evil, all sin, all unrighteousness. If Jesus didn't do that, yeah, you and I would be able to doubt. Do you really care? But we have what Isaiah calls a suffering Savior with nail marks in his hands. And the gospel declares to us, we don't have a God who stayed detached from the suffering, evil, and justice in the world, the various storms that humanity goes through. We have a God who disrobed his glory rolled up his sleeves and said, I'm going to go myself and personally become embroiled in their storms and endure the ultimate storm. Will you close your eyes with me as we pray? David's going to come and lead us in communion in a moment or two. Um, But as you reflect and as you pray, I I speak specifically to two groups of people. One is those of you right now, right now, going through a massive storm, major storm, going through right now something in your life right now where you're saying, God, are you with me? Are you with me? 
pray that you would today look upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and be able to walk away with assurance that that God is in the boat with you, that that God is in the storm with you, that that God walks and journeys with you every step of the way. He has not abandoned you. He has not rejected you. He has not forsaken you. He is with you. He is with you. He is with you, child of God. He is with you, brother and sister in the Lord. He is with you. And then for those of us that may not be in this situation right now, my prayer for us is that as we meditate and take communion, you and I would be able to see the one who is the Lord over a storm, who guides, who rules and reigns today in all authority. That you would walk away this morning afresh and new of his love and of his power for you and in your life. That you would be able to worship him for who he is. Worship him. Fall down and worship him for who he is and what he has done. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. The one who says to all of us, I am with you. Where is your faith?